This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for June 15th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we're joined once again by Jonathan Abraham from Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital. Jonathan studies viral interactions with host cells and host immunity through the lens of structural biology. This has been particularly important during the COVID-19 outbreak, given that antibodies have been used extensively as therapeutic agents, and they're one of the major mechanisms by which vaccines provide protection against infection and severe disease. Jonathan wrote an editorial on the article we published last week that we'll be talking about today. Eric, this article described another monoclonal antibody combination, tixagevimab-silgavimab, which the authors tested for its ability to prevent infection. So what do we know about this agent? Well, as you said, Steve, this drug is made up of two different monoclonal antibodies, each of which binds to epitopes within the receptor binding domain of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. Binding of either antibody results in neutralization, meaning that the binding results in blocking the virus from infecting cells in vitro. Because the binding sites aren't overlapping, theoretically, single mutations that decrease binding of one will not affect the other. The antibodies were originally isolated from the B cells of people infected with the SARS-CoV-2, but their FC portions have been modified to increase their half-life. So how did this study work and what were the results? The goal was to see if intramuscular injection of the antibodies could prevent COVID-19 in people who are at high risk of disease. The investigators recruited participants who had either conditions that predisposed to severe disease or were at increased risk of exposure to disease. It was an international study conducted in 87 sites. The primary efficacy outcome was confirmed symptomatic infection, and it was designed as an endpoint-driven trial, meaning that it would end when there were a total of 24 confirmed cases. However, as vaccines were being rolled out during the study, participants could choose to become unblinded. So there was another pre-specified stopping point when 30% of participants learned their status. This turned out to be the end of the trial. Safety was a co-primary outcome, and in the trial, participants were randomized two to one to receive a single dose of the vaccine, actually a dose of each antibody delivered consecutively, or a saline placebo. The investigators randomized a total of almost 3,500 participants and followed them for a median of 83 days. On testing, almost all of them had no evidence of prior infection. The participants were well-balanced from a racial and ethnic representation standpoint. As is true for most monoclonal antibodies, the treatment was well-tolerated and there were no strong safety signals. In the end, there were eight cases of COVID-19 in the antibody recipients as compared to 17 in the placebo group. Because there were twice as many in the antibody group, this gave a relative risk reduction of about 75%. Kaplan-Meier curves suggested that the effect persisted for at least several months. So this is another example of the efficacy of monoclonal antibodies, this time in preventing rather than treating disease. It's important to remember, of course, that this was done early in the epidemic, long before the Omicron variant appeared. So, Eric, I think that this report highlights several important features, as you suggest. First, how the study was done. This is pre-exposure prophylaxis. And I think as we think about our different treatments for COVID, we have to think about how we use them clinically. Vaccines are used in a pre-exposure prophylaxis setting, meaning I don't have COVID, I'm healthy, I get vaccinated, I develop an immune response. When I'm exposed to it down the road, I have protection. This antibody was given in this setting in a similar manner and people at risk for, but not with COVID. 
This is different than post-exposure prophylaxis. I came back from an event where somebody with COVID coughed in my face or early treatment. I have COVID, but I'm not yet sick because I'm in a setting where I can be tested frequently. And I think we need to think about how we use our treatments in the clinical setting. Another important concept that these data demonstrate is the complexity of doing these studies in the context of a global pandemic with a changing virus over time. Studies don't happen in a day. They take a period of time for the therapeutic to be developed, manufactured to scale, protocols to be developed, regulatory agencies to be engaged, and sites to be set up so they can conduct the studies. And this study was done expeditiously. However, the virus was not static and was changing, and the healthcare environment was not static and changing. As you note, they wisely in the study built in design elements that are frustrating from a data analytic and understanding perspective, which is the emergence of vaccination and individuals ending their participation to be able to be vaccinated, but appropriate from an ethical standpoint, because the best care for our patients, even if they're in studies, is paramount. And it is wonderful to see how that was designed in with analytic approaches to be able to still learn from this study, even with a changing healthcare environment around the study participants. And so I applaud the investigators conducting the study for building in these kinds of ethical frameworks and the scientific framework around it to allow us to continue to learn. And they provide us data that demonstrate that this antibody combination has efficacy against the circulating virus in preventing illness, even though the study conduct was not exactly as initially designed because of these changing factors during the study conduct. Jonathan, in your editorial, you discussed the importance of viral evolution in the use of these monoclonal agents. How has the landscape for monoclonal antibodies changed since Omicron appeared? The SARS-CoV-2 spike protein has continued to acquire mutations as the virus is adapted to pressure from antibodies human immune systems make when we're vaccinated or recover from infection. So the Omicron spike protein in particular contains many mutations that were likely acquired to allow the virus to escape human antibodies. And so because many of the monoclonal antibodies in clinical use were derived from the B cells of people previously infected with SARS-CoV-2 or from mice that make human-like antibodies, Omicron invasion of human antibody responses at large has also meant escape from monoclonal antibodies used clinically. So many of the monoclonal antibodies that were developed early during the pandemic have lost their activity against Omicron. As we watch the virus evolve and escape the therapeutic monoclonals, why do you think this is occurring as it is unlikely that clinical use of these monoclonals is exerting enough selective pressure on viral evolution? That's a critical question. I think the key here is it's not the monoclonal antibodies in clinical use that are driving the evolution, but rather the antibodies that we all make when we're vaccinated or recover from SARS-CoV-2 infection. And so what we've done in this case, in this pandemic, is we've taken antibodies we all make and we've made them into drugs. So resistance at large to antibodies we all make will mean resistance to drugs. And when you think about the circulating strains, There's the ancestral strain, alpha, beta, delta, gamma. And then we had the evolutionary jump as I look at it, but please correct me, with the Omicron variants and its progeny. How do you see the antibodies being able to 
manage this type of evolution in the virus? So I think at this point, rather than managing the evolution of the virus, there are certain sets of antibodies that perhaps were lucky and as they were developed, happened to avoid some of the hotspots that have now mutated again because the antibodies that target more common epitopes have lost activity. So an example of this is adezivimab, one of the antibodies originally developed by Eli Lilly. It was used in combination with bamlanivimab as a cocktail, but both antibodies bound a footprint that was effectively a hotspot for antibodies. So those were the ones that were quickly lost. And by antibodies, I mean antibodies that you and I and everybody usually make again when we're exposed to the virus. So common sites of targeting in the population at large are common sites of escape for the virus. The immunity that's driving evolution of the virus arises from two different sources, vaccine-induced immunity and infection-induced immunity. The difference between those, of course, is that the vaccines are all the same. So the same antigen is always being presented to people, at least up until now, whereas infection is producing a more varied immune response simply because the spike proteins are different over time that are causing this. So where is most of the selection currently occurring? Is it occurring in vaccine recipients who have a more homogenous immune response, or is it happening in people who have been infected? So it's a very challenging question because what we're seeing is a conflation of both immune pressure from vaccine-elicited responses and then individuals getting breakthrough infection. And it's very hard to uncouple individuals who've been vaccinated from those who perhaps may have been infected but not have known they were infected because they never tested positive. And so what we're seeing is effectively a conflation of both. So any antibody made by any means, vaccinated antibodies, antibodies from natural infection, antibodies from breakthrough infection, exerting pressure on the virus. And unfortunately, we're learning where that pressure is too late after a new variant emerges. So Jonathan, thinking about the conflation of forces, because as we've already discussed, the epidemic continues and is spreading broadly. The initial studies with monoclonals were largely in non-immune individuals, neither receiving vaccination or being previously infected, like the paper we published last week. How do you think about assessing efficacy of monoclonals now that the background immunologic environment is so different? I think the key is that the endpoints have to be very carefully selected. I think because of challenges with how monoclonal antibodies might not be able to make it to the nasal cavity and say protect from acquisition or transmission of virus, the endpoints have to be carefully selected to say preventing symptomatic illness as was done in the study. And so in these situations, there's a lot of signals, a lot of noise, but I think the ultimate goal is to prevent hospitalization and prevent death. And there are still vulnerable individuals out there who could benefit from these types of therapies and when these endpoints are studied, we'll be getting a better idea of how effective the antibodies are at doing that. But I think we cannot select, say, breakthrough infection as defined as PCR positive from a nasal cavity sample, but rather, are individuals getting sick and are we saving lives? The modifications made to increase the half-life of these antibodies alter their interaction with other components of our immune systems. So how might this affect the efficacy of the antibodies? So antibodies have an FC fragment that can interact with other components of the immune system. This happens through specific receptors called FC receptors, 
And these other components of the immune system include natural killer cells, complement, and neutrophils. And now what's a critical question is, there are instances in which mutations in the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein can somewhat diminish but not completely abolish the ability of a monoclonal antibody to bind and neutralize the virus. In these instances, FC fragments can harness these additional immune components and rescue neutralizing antibodies that might otherwise poorly be active in cell-based assays, allowing those antibodies to be active in vivo. So having great FC effector functions may be a way of preserving the efficacy of neutralizing antibodies that have been otherwise weakened because of spike protein mutations and spike protein evolution. Jonathan, is it a strict trade-off if you make FC portion mutations that increase the half-life does that always mean you're not going to interact with many of these components of the immune system? Those have effectively been uncoupled. And so there are instances where you can add half-life extending modifications, as well as modifications that enhance some of these other activities. But the field is quite sophisticated in being able to fine-tune all of these functions. How do the modifications extend the half-life? And how do you think about what the extended dosing interval should be? for these extended half-life monoclonal antibodies? So these modifications are made in ways that bias the FC fragment and how it interacts with various FC receptors in a way that, again, allows the antibody to be recycled into the circulation and prolong half-life. The question of how do you use an antibody with extended half-life is a great one, but also a difficult one because now we're dealing in a situation where the variants are also dynamic. And so defining the interval in a pandemic whereby the variants are changing, their resistance profiles to the antibodies are changing is extremely difficult. So I'd say if we were dealing with a static entity, then it's perhaps something we could have been able to predict based on PK values or pharmacokinetics. But because the variants are changing and the activity of the antibodies are changing because of the variants effectively evolving, it becomes very difficult to sort out. So you comment on the PK, which is how much antibodies in the blood, and it's in relation to its relative activity against the variant of concern or interest. But how do you also think about it in terms of compartment, which you alluded to before, in terms of the respiratory mucosa, be it upper or lower? And should we be thinking about the PK in relation to the site of viral exposure? I would perhaps argue that because there has not been a clear solution just yet on how to get antibodies in the nasal cavity, even the combination of texagivimab and selgavimab when it was studied in animal models and humans, you're dealing typically with less than 1% of the concentration of the antibody that's detected in blood that would be detected in the nasal cavity. That the benchmark really, again, should perhaps be one of looking for proper exposure to the lower respiratory tract and in these instances, protecting from disease severity, as opposed to trying to protect individuals from having a PCR positive test. Let me follow up on that, Jonathan, because we talked about FC engineering. We certainly can engineer antibodies to be secretory. Is that something that would be at all desirable? I'm, you're suggesting that it's not for preventing disease severity, which is true. But if you wanted to prevent infection, could you think about making cocktails of monoclonals that had both secretory components and non-secreted antibodies? Yes, that is a fantastic question. I think this is where the field is heading now. It also, I think, has an underpinning that is not fully sorted out yet from the standpoint of our understanding of the immunology and nasal cavity, the role of IgA. So these are all very exciting research questions at this point. 
but I feel like the field has not matured enough yet to deploy them in a sophisticated way to do a clinical trial say that would, would happen within months time frame. I see this more as perhaps something we will learn from this pandemic and hopefully if it ends, uh, be able to apply to other respiratory pathogens as well. And this may also explain some of the challenges around transmission, since the nasal cavity is the site of early infection, even if it's mild, and likely contributes to how we spread to each other. Another question, Jonathan, just about the engineering. In thinking about sort of IgG subclasses, you know, one and three being more active in relation to effector function, two and four less. How do you think about which subclasses should be utilized in the engineering for which properties are more favorable for either efficacy or to be diminished in terms of safety? This is an excellent question that I would add as well that perhaps these parameters might have to be modified as we think of using antibodies for prevention as opposed to treatment. And then also perhaps this would be an opportunity to explore whether or not a stage of illness perhaps that is more advanced and relies on proper balancing of immune effector function and perhaps dampening of immune effector functions, whether or not therapeutic antibodies could extend into that window by having more immunomodulatory properties. So I think of IgG2 and IgG4 as antibodies our immune systems make when we fight off infections. And perhaps if appropriately timed, they could indeed have a role, but perhaps in more advanced illness. So I think this is all exciting, but still an area of investigation, but our bodies make these, so they must be important. So I think we are tasked to understanding the biology and incorporating these types of features into the design of next generation drugs. Given viral evolution, the holy grail for developers of both monoclonal antibodies and vaccines is to develop broad range binding that might anticipate the emergence of new viruses rather than reacting to each new variant as it appears. So Jonathan, from your vantage point as someone who studies virus antibody interactions, do you think there might be ways to get there? I think there are. The virus is evolving to evade the kind of antibodies our B cells readily make when we're vaccinated or recover from SARS-CoV-2 infection. And so some monoclonal antibodies can be potent against Omicron and look very attractive as therapeutic agents. But if we develop these monoclonal antibodies and use them as drugs, the virus will likely mutate those sites next. The best way forward for vaccines and monoclonal antibodies would be to target spike protein regions that are not easily targeted by antibodies you and I make. This has indeed become a major challenge. So Jonathan, as you mentioned, the monoclonal antibodies we're using now as therapeutics were derived largely from patients or from animals who are infected, and they represent the spectrum of antibodies that arise from natural infection. What you're suggesting now, I think, is a more artificial approach where we would raise antibodies to parts of the spike protein to which we don't ordinarily make an immune response. Do we have the technology to do that? I think there are a number of technologies now that involve using in vitro based assays with yeast or bacteriophages that express antibodies or antibody-like fragments. The disadvantage of these approaches for now is that in certain cases, because they haven't naturally evolved in the human body, one has to be very careful to screen them for autoreactivity, but those platforms are indeed available. So I think the technology is indeed there. There's also phenomenal work being done in designing antibody-like molecules that are engineered proteins based on computational design. The trade-off with those, of course, is that ultimately some of them can be immunogenic, but there might be strategies to reduce their immunogenicity so that they could be redosed. 
So this is a challenge we're faced with and perhaps a challenge that other fields like the field of influenza, universal vaccine design, HIV vaccine design, we could learn from some of those sophisticated approaches. So do you see the monoclonals going forward being sort of pan-Omicron targeting, pan-ancestral strain, pan-SARS-CoV-2, pan-coronavirus? How do you see us developing the platform in terms of what to target and its breadth of retained activity? So I think there are two approaches moving forward. One is to just build an extensive tool set of antibodies that should have activity against Omicron and ancestral strains and roll out antibodies as variants emerge. The other approach is one of very clever antibody or protein engineering and developing something that is pan-coronavirus. I think what we've learned from evolution thus far with SARS-CoV-2, for example, is the closest thing we had to a pan-coronavirus antibody was sutrovimab, an antibody that cross-reacts between the SARS-CoV and SARS-CoV-2 spike protein developed from a SARS-CoV convalescent individual. Unfortunately, even though that epitope is conserved between SARS-1 and SARS-2, Omicron, particularly the BA2 variants, has mutated the sites that were bound by sutrovimab. So we're in an instance whereby because of immune pressure and human adaptation, the virus has evolved away from another coronavirus that we previously thought was divergent enough that, you know, again, a SARS-1 and SARS-2 neutralizing antibodies would be an inescapable agent. So the virus has proved us wrong. So as you point out, we have to keep reacting to the viral evolution, which is difficult to predict. Can you comment a little bit on the speed of this platform? How nimble is this platform to be responsive to viral evolution? Well, I think the example of beptilivimab is perhaps a good one to borrow from, but this is an agent that was, I think, developed in the early phase of the pandemic against the ancestral virus. It was rapidly rolled out after Omicron emerged and stood out clearly as a winner based on in vitro-based assays. The challenge there is perhaps the human studies demonstrating efficacy at the latest stages were not there. So I think we have to get more and more comfortable with realizing that antibodies are usually very safe molecules that could be administered against viruses and also sort out how comfortable we would be with rolling out antibodies based on in vitro results, which would speed up the process. Jonathan, we've talked about Omicron as a variant, but in fact, new variants have arisen since Omicron. How do these affect the binding of antibodies? Because of the significance of the leap that Omicron represents from ancestral strains of SARS-CoV-2, really sort of think about how we were thinking about variants of concern earlier during the pandemic. For example, the ancestral strain acquiring the L452R mutations, the RBD, and that becoming the Delta variant, and that having weakened activity against a number of monoclonal antibodies. And so in this instance, with every variant, uh, I'm a structural biologist, so I can pull up the coordinates and have a look. But in most cases, ultimately, these mutations in BA4 and BA5 are popping up at sites whereby if there were antibodies elicited by the ancestral strain that were still effective against Omicron, those are exactly where the antibodies are binding. 
the virus is mutating those sites to escape. So BA4 and BA5, for example, have the alpha-52R mutation that was previously found in Delta. They also have a new mutation, F486V, which again would impact antibodies. And the concern there, of course, is now one has to race and do the in vitro studies to understand the impact on monoclonal antibodies. And so reopen that can of worms in every instance whereby mutations are popping up on subvariants. But isn't that evolution in action, which is as immunity emerges in the community from prior infection and vaccination, for a new variant to be successful, it has to evade that immunity. That is exactly the case. For the variant to be successful, it has to evade that immunity. And ultimately, the major question in the field now is there a ceiling for this mutational burden? Or is there a point at which the virus will mutate and this would have negative impact on transmission and viral fitness? I unfortunately fear we're still far away from that. So as we think about this platform, if we can look at it that way, how nimble is it for other pathogens? There are other viruses that we're worried about today in different parts of the world. Is this a platform that can pivot to other needs as we see pathogens emerge? Well, I would hope it would inspire paradigm shift. I think at this point, for most emerging viruses, typically you'll have one or two antibodies developed, say, from immunized mice or phage display that had advanced to phase one. And these antibodies are parked as a drug that could be rapidly deployed. But I think what we've learned from the pandemic is that if we're not able to stop the virus early in its tracks, it can evolve away from these antibodies. And so what you want to have up front for many of these pathogens are multiple antibodies available and ready for rapid deployment. So I think the same way as our bodies make multiple antibodies against pathogens while we're exposed to them, our tool set also has to be expansive and have multiple antibodies available for deployment. Thank you, Jonathan, for joining us this week. And as always, thank you, Eric, and thank you, Lindsay.